Hello, and welcome to episode number 97 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacademian. Over the last several episodes of this podcast, we've been exploring the overlap between religious history, shamanism, and the UFO phenomenon. In today's episode, we'll be continuing this line of inquiry by zeroing in on the mystical and transformative aspects of encounters had as part of the modern UFO phenomenon. Specifically, we'll be considering how the nature of these encounters had in a seemingly alternate realm or alternate state of consciousness prompt remarkably consistent and long-lasting worldview changes amongst those who had the experiences. While some will argue that the ontological shock experienced in interactions with alien beings that are not supposed to exist according to the dictates of conventional thinking is simply that, the result of paradigm-shattering experiences have with often frightening, bug-like creatures, a more thoughtful approach might suggest that, to the contrary, the reality rewrite that experiencers undergo is not just an unintended side effect, but a chief aim of the entire enterprise. Put another way, one can very clearly make the argument that a central mission of these mysterious others interacting with human beings over time is to quote-unquote wake us up to who we truly are and to how we're connected to everything and everyone else around us, including myriad beings we have not even yet begun to map onto our collective awareness. Ultimately, that waking up process is not only about expanding our conceptual categories, but more centrally about cracking open human perception and human potential, allowing us to more fully step into our true birthright as powerful, multidimensional beings that are fractal representations of source consciousness itself. In the latter part of the 20th century, Dr. John Mack, a well-respected professor of psychiatry and head of the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, was thrust full-on into these confusing and controversial matters when he began to be sought out by the people who'd had these discombobulating encounters. In taking these accounts seriously, determining that, contrary to mainstream thinking of the time, these accounts were not the result of delusional damaged minds, Mac played a central role in mainstreaming our culture's engagement with these challenging issues. In today's episode, we'll be considering the observations made by John Mack in his groundbreaking book, Passport to the Cosmos, Human Transformation and Alien Encounters. By the time Mack penned this book, he was a decade or more into the matter of apparent alien abduction and hybridization and having had first-hand exposure not only to Western experiencers, but also to shamans and those of various indigenous traditions from around the world, he was in a unique position to draw overarching insights from his immersive investigations. In what directions did these investigations take his thinking, and why were his tentative conclusions so utterly unpalatable for conventional Western society? These are the matters we'll seek to explore, in this, the 97th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, I'd just like to remind everyone that if you'd like to get access to all of my content, which includes not just Point of Convergence and Liminal Frames episodes, but also OTC Squared and the various feature series I create, 
in addition to live Q&A sessions with me and my private Discord server, as well as early access and discounts on online courses and workshop retreats, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacademia or by subscribing on Spotify. And speaking of online courses, I announced this past week that the next course being offered is Expanding Awareness. This is the second time I've offered this course. Had very positive response the first time, and you can read about that in the testimonials page on essenceofbeing.info. That's essenceofbeing.info, and you can also go there to sign up for the course if you'd like to take part. The Expanding Awareness online course is a 12-week course that begins on February 21st. That is a Wednesday evening. It will happen every Wednesday evening, and I also provide recordings of all of the sessions to all of the participants in case you can't always be there. So I hope to see some of you there in the online course. Really looking forward to that starting up in a few weeks. All right, with that preamble aside, let's get into today's episode where we're discussing John Mack's amazing book, Passport to the Cosmos, Human Transformation and Alien Encounters. This was a groundbreaking book in the time it was first published, and it's still groundbreaking today because of John's unique way of approaching this topic and the way he considered alternatives that are not often considered in the mainstream. And speaking of that, in terms of thinking outside of the box, this is something John penned in the introduction in terms of a request of the reader. He said, quote, I would like to make a plea that my readers begin with an attitude of not knowing, including not knowing about how we know about anything, especially what is most important to us. I would also ask that we suspend the natural tendency to form questions according to the logic that is characteristic of the human mind as it applies itself to the human world, such as, quote, if the aliens are X, then why don't they do Y, unquote. My own approach has been largely that of a clinician, allowing the abduction experiencers to tell their stories without initial judgments or interpretations, knowing there is always time to assess the messenger and the message later. In this regard, clinicians have a certain advantage, for in working with other human beings, we have always relied heavily on empathy and intuition, on the use of ourselves as the instruments of knowing. We are accustomed to uncertainty and to immersing ourselves in the varieties and mysteries of human experience, unquote. Personally, I think that's a very appropriate and apt request from Mac in terms of how we engage with these matters. We really need to think outside of the box again. We need to consider this in terms of how it might create a new model of reality itself. This is something that Mac gets into over and over again in this book. And as he just talked about there, not just what we know, but how we know things, how we can be sure of anything. And sometimes you can have certain kinds of knowledge that work within a certain frame of reference, but that doesn't mean that that is indicative of total reality. And what this phenomenon does over and over again, of course, is it challenges, it collapses, it transcends our conventional categories. And rather than being intimidated by that, I would suggest we take the approach of being adventurers who are on a quest to understand more about reality, knowing that perhaps that journey will never end. And isn't it more interesting if it doesn't end? Again, that's something I would suggest to you that you consider as we move forward. Now, as I touched on in the introduction, John Mack was thrust into these matters when people who had had these encounters sought him out for understanding, for a way to process 
what had happened to them. Just to clarify, these people had gone to other authorities first. They didn't initially think they should go to a therapist. But the problem was that no one in conventional society was willing to take these accounts seriously. Again, in the mainstream, it was just assumed that these kinds of encounters couldn't be happening because these kinds of beings simply didn't exist, again, according to the mainstream thinking. But John Mack, again, took these people at face value. He listened to their accounts. He applied his long-term understanding that had been gained over decades of working with patients, whether or not these people were being truthful to the best of their ability. And he determined that they were, which of course then raises really interesting questions about what is the issue here? Is it the people that are recounting these events or is it our model of reality itself? This created quite a conundrum for Mac, and he discusses this in this part of the book I'm going to read from now. Quote, I was then faced with a choice of either trying to fit these individuals' reports into a framework that fit my worldview. They were having fantasies, strange dreams, delusions, or some other distortions of reality, or of modifying my worldview to include the possibility that entities beings, energies, something could be reaching my clients from another realm. The first choice was compatible with my worldview, but did not fit the clinical data. The second was inconsistent with my philosophical grounding and with conventional assumptions about reality, but appeared to fit better what I was finding. It seemed to me to be more logical and intellectually more honest to modify my cosmology than to continue trying to force my clients into molds that clearly did not suit them, unquote. And again, I just think we should be so thankful to John Mack for that approach, that he didn't just assume a priori that these people were making these things up or that they were delusional or that they were frauds altogether. He took their accounts seriously because everything about the way their demeanor demonstrated in front of him suggested that they were being truthful and that they were recounting events that were showing signs of post-traumatic stress in their bodies. Again, not something you can fake. And because he took these accounts seriously, and because he clearly believed something had happened to these people that was quote-unquote real, he therefore opened up the aperture and began to wonder what might this be telling us about the insufficiency of our current model of reality. And of course, those of you familiar with the history will know that this ability of Mac to open the aperture and to consider different models of reality didn't sit so well with the conventional mainstream gatekeepers. And Mac addresses this in reference to the tribunal he was subjected to by the Harvard Medical School. I'm going to quote from the book here, quote, just how deeply held is the worldview that separates radically the material world from the realms of spirit, unseen agency, demonic reality, in the words of English writer Patrick Harper, or what are called the subtle realms in Eastern spiritual traditions, was brought home to me a few weeks after the publication of my book in the spring of 1994, when one of the deans at the Harvard Medical School handed me a letter that called for the establishment of a small committee to investigate my work. After explaining vaguely that concerns, quote-unquote, had been expressed to the university about what I was doing, Although he told of no specific complaint, nor was I offered in the letter, he added pleasantly, for he had been a friend and colleague, that I would not have gotten into trouble if I had not suggested in the book that my findings might require a change in our view of reality, rather than saying that I had found a new psychiatric syndrome 
whose cause had not yet been established, unquote. So that's the key, of course. He's talking there about his first book, Abduction, and how the fact that he took the data to mean that perhaps we needed to open up the aperture again about what our model of reality was, this was the problem. If, again, he had played within the rules of the conventional thinking, the conventional model, and had merely suggested that he had discovered a new kind of psychiatric syndrome of which these various experiencers were falling prey to, it would have been no problem. He would have been accepted and welcomed with open arms. But because he had the gall to say that this data seemed to be not only real, but also therefore calling into question, again, the sufficiency of our model of reality itself, that didn't land well in the mainstream, in academia, in media in general. And of course, John Mack suffered losing much of his credibility by putting his neck out in these matters. And yet he was just that kind of person. He really was this rare kind of character who pursues the data wherever it takes him, even if that means he's going to garner the ridicule and resistance of the mainstream when he dares to challenge their assumptions. Now, speaking of assumptions, one of the challenges that Mac ran into was realizing that Western society tends to frame things in a certain way. But people from indigenous traditions, shamanic traditions, etc., that we've been discussing over the last couple episodes, they don't have this stark delineation between the spiritual world and the physical world. They see it as kind of a blending together or different frames of reality that overlap and intersperse with each other. And Mac discusses this at length in the book. And of course, part of the reason why he was so impacted by these indigenous ways of seeing the world, of seeing reality, is that it seemed to better fit with the data arising from the abduction phenomenon, that people often seem to have these encounters, as I've been saying, in a kind of alternate realm or alternate state of consciousness, a different dimension. Again, whatever kind of language you want to use, this seemed to be indicative of these kinds of encounters which are more like mystical experiences described in shamanic traditions and various monotheistic religious traditions as well. I'm going to read from a section from the book now where Mac discusses this. Quote, Some of the subjects of my recent interviews have come from indigenous cultures in the United States and other countries. Frequently, these informants will tell me that according to tribal legends, their people came from the sky and that their cultures were founded by quote-unquote star people arriving sometimes in what they call UFOs or something like them. I have found it difficult to interpret such communications primarily because of the different relationship between the spirit or unseen and the material worlds in native cultures. For example, according to Bernardo Pixioto, a shaman who was raised by the Ipixuma tribe of the Brazilian rainforest, quote, Our legends say that a long time ago a flying saucer landed in the Amazon basin and that men emerged from this spaceship. He said there were even cave drawings made hundreds if not thousands of years ago that showed some kind of craft. These beings were makuras, or spirits that came from high up in the sky. When I asked him if among his people this legend was to be regarded literally as referring to the material world, or should be seen rather as metaphoric, or a crossing over from the unseen or spirit realms into the material world, he replies succinctly that among his people, quote, this makes no difference, unquote. So again, this is the issue, that the way we framed reality in the West, this kind of dualistic division between the spirit world, if we acknowledge it at all, 
and the material world or the physical world doesn't exist for these indigenous cultures, for these shamanic traditions. And again, they speak to beings from the sky, from the stars, arriving in something like a spaceship very often. Again, we've discussed the work of Artie Six Killer Clark on a couple different episodes of this podcast. And again, for these indigenous cultures, many of them believe their heritage is from the stars, that they indeed are the descendants of people from the stars, aliens, basically. But again, sometimes they look quite humanoid. But for these indigenous shamanistic traditions, this is not a problem, that they see this as part and parcel of reality, that you have these kinds of interpenetrating realms as part of their model of reality. That wasn't a problem for them. And again, what Mac found compelling about these particular accounts of reality and of history is that it better fit with what he was learning from experiencers who'd been abducted and had been part of the hybridization program, etc. And as we've been discussing on recent podcast episodes, much of the abduction experience mirrors initiation kinds of traditions within shamanic culture. So again, this seems to be pointing to the same thing, perhaps, underlyingly, but the way we've used different language to describe these things in different traditions and in different cultural settings has made us miss this commonality. Continuing with this thread, Mac writes, quote, Similarly, Maladoma Somme, a shaman of the Dagara people of Burkina Faso in West Africa, with advanced degrees from the Sorbonne and Bandes University, has written, quote, In Western reality, there is a clear split between the spiritual and the material, between religious life and secular life. This concept is alien to the Dagara. For us, as for many indigenous cultures, the supernatural is part of our everyday lives. To a Dagara man or woman, the material is just a spiritual taking on form. I have heard similar statements frequently from native people in North America. Sequoia Trueblood, for example, says that for him, whether the physical body is taken during an abduction is not important, for, quote, we are spirit, unquote. Native people, he adds, live in a world of spirit and meaning while whites live in a world of science and facts. Continuing here, quote, Among Native peoples, at least those who have maintained a connection with their traditional ways, direct communication with the Creator may be part of everyday life, and UFOs, or something like them, seem to play a part in this contact. Wallace Black Elk, an esteemed Lakota elder and shaman, has said, quote, We don't need a piece of paper to contact the spirits. We send a voice to the Creator, Yo-Ho, and somebody responds and comes in, unquote. Someone might say, Yo-Ho, I'm lost, I need help. Then a spirit comes and takes me someplace. They'll fly you there. They'll take you any place. If you want to visit the moon, they'll take you up there. They'll put you in one of those little flying saucers, and they'll zoom you up there in no time. Then they'll bring you back, unquote. Now, notice there he talked about when someone feels lost, they might call out to these spirits, who might show up in what we perceive as something like a technological craft, a UFO, so to speak. I think here of the accounts of someone like Chris Bledsoe, again, a modern-day experiencer as part of the UFO phenomenon in terms of how we Westerners tend to frame it. He speaks about, as have many other experiencers, the notion that it was at the lowest point in his life when he was crying out for help, crying out to God, if you will, for assistance, that these beings showed up. Again, they show up in a way he was not expecting and informs he was not expecting, but there was an underlyingly spiritual message 
to their communication to him, to not be afraid, to trust in the process, to, along with others, raise his frequency of consciousness so as to meet the challenges of the moment. Again, this is now seen across history. And again, when we look past the initial differences in language beyond the surface veneer, as I like to call it, we find remarkable commonality across these traditions, East and West, modern and ancient. Now, longtime listeners of this podcast will know that the reason I called the podcast Point of Convergence is because there are different kinds of what are called contact modalities that speak to something about underlying reality, something profound about the nature of reality altogether. These include out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, psi phenomena, encounters with apparitions or deceased loved ones, etc. This ties in with the UFO phenomenon. And again, of course, what we're learning on these recent episodes is that the UFO phenomenon has much overlap with these ancient shamanistic traditions where there's this blend between different realms of reality or different states of consciousness and our everyday world. Now, again, Mac talks about how these different kinds of phenomena, not just encounters with aliens, but near-death experiences, etc., all point in the same direction in terms of the ultimate fabric of reality itself. Now, quoting from the book again, quote, I will document experiencers' reports with physical evidence where applicable, but my principal interest is in the experiences themselves, their pattern, meaning, and potential implications for our understanding of reality and our knowledge of ourselves and the universe. I have come to regard the alien abduction phenomenon as one among a number of occurrences currently confronting human consciousness, like near-death and out-of-body experiences, strange animal mutilations, the complex crop formations that appear mysteriously in a few seconds in fields of rape and other grains, apparitions of the Virgin Mary, and spontaneous shamanic experiences which might be described as crossover phenomena, events of various sorts that appear to manifest in the material world but seem not to be of it. These phenomena seem to violate the barrier, so sacred to the rationalist mind, between the forces of the unseen world and the material realm, giving us glimpses, in researcher Linda Howe's words, of other realities." Unquote. Now, something else that's been a recurring theme on this podcast for quite some time now is the redeeming of human experience, that even a notion like idealism in terms of an overarching model redeems and dignifies human experience, puts human experience at the very center of events again, and rather than seeing consciousness, human consciousness, as arising as a kind of accident from natural events, we turn the tables, if you will, and make consciousness primary, foundational. Again, the evidence arising from the data from numerous different fields all seems to be pointing in this direction. This is not wishful thinking. In fact, if anything, the biases in the mainstream are preventing many scientists, many from within academia, from seeing the writing on the wall, pointing in this direction, again, to something more like idealism in terms of the mentational nature of reality, that ultimately original mind, some ultimate mind is responsible for everything. And within that mind, we have these different permutations of different realms of reality that can interpenetrate each other like dreamscapes, if you will. But ultimately, this is about the primacy of experience itself. People such as Bernardo Castro have spoken about this, how some of the madness of conventional science 
leads us down these strange paths where we actually want to question whether or not we have experience at all. And yet, how could we know anything? How could we study anything? How could we postulate anything if not for the primacy of conscious experience? Of course, this is central to the matter. And Mac also talks about this in reflecting on the movie Contact, a really remarkable movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. And he speaks about that film and what the main character went through in terms of her own experience versus what was understood as having happened to others that were watching the situation. And again, of course, also according to what the possibilities were assumed to be. Quoting again from the book, quote, In doing this work, I am reminded of the dilemma facing the astronomer Ellie Arroway in the film Contact upon her return from her flight, quote-unquote, into space. Strapped into her shaking interstellar pod, she has presumably been launched into the heavens, hurtling toward the star Vega. In what seems like hours to her, Ellie passes through vortices of spectacular power and beauty, opening into cosmic vistas of such transcendent glory that she is overwhelmed with awe and reverence, feeling as if she were in the presence of the magnificence of God. She lands on a luminescent seashore where the fabric of divine nature seems virtually palpable. In the spirit realm made real, Ellie meets her long-dead father. Then she abruptly finds herself back at the launch site, where she is told that the system malfunctioned, that she and her space pod did not go anywhere, and that only a few minutes of time on Earth have passed. Scientists try to tell her that her belief in her experiences represents delusion or hallucination, as she has no artifacts from space or other evidence to back up her story. But everything about her as a sane and heretofore at least rational persona tells her that what occurred was altogether real. Her little spaceship's videotape shows that, in its time perspective, 18 hours had passed, tending to corroborate Ellie's story while opening a new mystery of differential time perception. But that is not the most important point. She has had an experience that is unequivocally real and of transcendent power and meaning to her, challenging, if not shattering, her secular worldview, unquote. Again, an amazing movie, an amazing story, and this speaks to the experience of experiencers, where they have very real events that seem to contradict our understanding according to conventional dictates of how these things could even occur. And again, though, I want to remind people, if we're dealing with intelligences so beyond us, it should not be surprising to us that they would run circles around not just our technology, but our very way of understanding the nature of reality itself. And indeed, that seems to be what you would expect from a hyper-advanced civilization or species or kind of intelligence. And again, that seems to be borne out in the experience of these experiencers who have remarkably real accounts, transformational accounts, that change who they are from then on out for the rest of their lives, but include details that are hard for us to make sense of. Of course, I would suggest that's exactly what we should expect from beings such as these when interacting with beings such as ourselves who are quite primitive in comparison. Now, further on in this book, Passport to the Cosmos, John Mack talks about the different elements that are common for experiencers in terms of what they encounter in their experiences. First of all, of course, we have the centrality of the hybridization project. I've spoken about this frequently on this podcast. This is not some side note. This is central to the entire affair. 
again, the UFO phenomenon, quote unquote, is a complex matter speaking to intelligences and kinds of beings coming from various origin sources. But within that totality, there is a certain kind of enterprise that happened towards the end of the 20th century that involved the taking of human beings into apparent craft, although often it seemed to be in a kind of alternate realm again or alternate state of consciousness, and ova and sperm being extracted as part of some hybridization program that also involved actually meeting some of these hybrid beings. And again, part of the narrative is that initially some of these experiments didn't go so well and these hybrid beings seemed to fail to thrive, that the experiment didn't seem to be going so well. Over time, though, the beings improve their process, their procedures, and experiencers report later meeting beings, hybrid beings, their apparent children, that seem to be thriving and seem to be the best of both worlds, so to speak, in terms of representing a complex but successful blending of something like a gray alien with a human being. So we have the medical, surgical-like, and hybridization project that is central to this entire matter for this particular kind of intelligence. Again, not all of the UFO phenomenon involves that, but a certain part of it does, and that's the people that John Mack largely dealt with. The second key element of this particular enterprise, this historical enterprise, and it also involves other kinds of beings, not just those involved with the hybridization experiments, is information around protecting the earth. Again, we think of the kids from Zimbabwe. They had that kind of message delivered to them that we needed to protect the earth, that our technological pursuits were taking us away from the centrality of consciousness, and that in having lost a sense of who we truly are and how we're connected to everything, that we are, again, fractal impressions of source itself, we have damaged our interactions with each other, damaged the fabric of human consciousness, and also damage the earth. Again, which we are also a part of. We are not just something on the earth or native to the earth, but we are an expression of the earth. We arose from the earth. So it's key here. We have different kinds of biomes, different kinds of ways of framing consciousness that all gets impacted, not just humankind, but other frames of reference that we are a part of, larger thrusts of consciousness, including the planet, including even larger biomes than that that when we, as a piece of this larger puzzle, misapprehend who we are in our most essential nature, the ramifications stretch far and wide. Again, we think about the messages around the detonating of atomic weapons and that that has implications, ramifications that impact other kinds of beings, other kinds of intelligences throughout the cosmos, not just in our local environment. Again, this is a message that is front and center and again, this matter of our essential nature is something we talk about a lot in the Expanding Awareness class, so that might be something you're interested in. So first we have, again, the hybridization experiments, the medical kinds of endeavors. Then we have information around protecting the Earth. And then another central element to this particular part of the UFO phenomenon that involved these people that John Mack dealt with is around transformation and spiritual natures. So again, here we're talking about the way that these people were changed fundamentally after having had these encounters. And again, the change seems to be of a spiritual nature underlyingly. Quoting again from the book, quote, the third dimension of the abduction phenomenon might variously be defined as consciousness expanding, growth engendering, or spiritual. 
One of the most intense debates in this field occurs around the question of whether these changes in the psyche of the experiencers, no researchers seem to deny that such change, even transformation, does in fact occur in some cases, is an intrinsic aspect of the phenomenon, even its purpose or intention, or is instead a kind of byproduct reflecting human creativity, resilience, and adaptability in the face of traumatic challenge, or is even the result of alien trickery or deception. There is a good deal of confusion in the abduction research field surrounding the word spiritual. How, some argue, can a phenomenon that is so clearly traumatic for many people, one that seems to disregard human wishes, feelings, and morality, be spiritual in the sense of coming from a higher source? Some experiencers are even left with external and possibly internal organ scarring, as well as lasting conscious and unconscious fears and phobias. Should not spiritual experiences be benign, largely uplifting, or directly enlightening? Yet we know that some experiences, such as life-threatening illnesses, tragic losses, and other personal crises are often catalysts for profound personal growth and transformation. Furthermore, many spiritual disciplines, such as Zen Buddhism and shamanic initiations, include harsh practices that confront the student with disturbing aspects of internal and external reality. Some abduction experiencers describe openings and connections to what they variously describe as the other world, divine light, home, source, or God, that leave little doubt in the minds of the people who talk with them that something important has occurred. Whitley Strieber has been on a path of transformation through the Gurdjieff Foundation before he became aware of his encounters with the visitors, as he calls them. When he told his Gurdjieff teacher about his experiences with the beings, which had initially been intensely terrifying, the teacher said, quote, 15 seconds with those people, 15 years of meditation. You're very lucky, unquote. Continuing with the book here, quote, the apparent expansion of psychic or intuitive abilities, a heightened reverence for nature with the feeling of having a life-preserving mission and collapse of space-time perception, a sense of entering other dimensions of reality or universes, the conviction of possessing a dual human alien identity, a feeling of connection with all of creation, and related transpersonal experiences, all are such frequent features of the abduction phenomenon that I have come to feel that they are, at least potentially, basic elements of the process. Indeed, the experiences of abductees may bring them to something very much akin to shamanic or mystical states of mind, although for the most part, the experiencers remain deeply rooted in everyday three-dimensional life, a dilemma that sometimes causes a good deal of pain. Even when abductees initially experience the beings themselves, especially the now well-known small gray figures with huge black eyes, as instigators of great fear and trauma, over time they may come to see them as odd spirit guides, closer to the ultimate creative principle or source than humans, even as emissaries from the divine. Abductees also commonly experience a poignant sense that they have themselves become too separated from home, source, or God, and will cry and rage against the fact that they have been incarnated or reincarnated back on earth. As one man said, crying, I just want to go home. They will get me there. It's a gate, and I will go through it. Reluctantly, experiencers will accept that they have made some sort of agreement with the beings or their creator itself to fulfill a human mission, unquote. 
Now, understandably, these are controversial matters. Some people will cry Stockholm syndrome here, the notion that people are only after the fact developing positive ways of seeing their encounters so as to not feel like they've lost all agency altogether, to not feel like complete victims. But apparently, the evidence doesn't suggest that's the case. When you look closely at the data, as someone like Mac did, who again was very familiar with notions like the Stockholm Syndrome, very familiar with people basically trying to reframe things to gain agency in ways that wasn't really indicative of the underlying reality, he concluded that these were real experiences for people, not just the abductions, not just seeing these beings interacting with them, but the profound worldview changes that arose as a result as well. And as he just pointed to there, and I'm very familiar with this, being a Zen Buddhist practitioner, that yes, indeed, being shocked into larger frames of references is part of the enterprise, that this is something that is part and parcel of these ancient spiritual traditions. So again, we are seeing common ground across these different kinds of categories of experience. And again, we are only missing it or have only missed it up until now because we haven't considered the common ground and have got caught up in different language and different framings. So again, this is key, that as he spoke about there, even with the notion of a soul contract, that even when we go through difficult things, things that shock us into awakening, that might be part of the stage set for the evolution of consciousness. Again, we first have to experience this as fully real, as the only reality, so that we fully have skin in the game and in that resistance training, grow and develop our consciousness. But then over time, ideally, we wake up to this larger frame of reality and remember that we are here for a purpose, for a mission. Again, this is central to the experience of many of these abduction experiencers, that it's not just about being part and parcel of this program to perhaps create a new kind of being by taking ova and sperm, but also in waking humankind up altogether. And for what purpose? Well, first of all, because there's this sense that we are reaching this key moment, this precipice of self-destruction if we don't wake up, that again is completely attached to our misapprehension of who we are and how we're connected to everything else and how we are indeed ourselves fractal impressions of source consciousness. And also this sense that in the times we are living in right now, we are seeing this thinning of the veil. Many, many experiencers talk about this, this sense that we're about to see kind of the melding together of two different frames of reality, two interpenetrating frames of reality becoming perhaps one. Now again, central to this entire endeavor for experiencers is how they develop relationship with these beings over time to the point where they don't even like to be referred to as abductees. They prefer terms like contactees or volunteers even to use a term used in the Dolores Cannon series of books. And John Mack talks about this evolving sense of relationship with the beings over time. Quote, The fourth basic dimension of the abduction phenomenon concerns the evolution of the human-alien relationship. The experience of connection between one or more of the alien beings and the abductees with whom they relate is such a powerful and consistent aspect of the phenomenon that I have come to perceive it as one of its basic elements. The relationships vary, of course, according to the sort of alien and probably human being involved. The gray reptilian beings seem to be more trauma-inducing, at least initially, than the light or human-appearing beings. Nevertheless, some generalization seems possible. It seems as if trans-dimensional or interspecies relationship 
is itself a fundamental part of this whole process. Sometimes the beings may be perceived by small children or recalled by adults as friendly childhood playmates or even protectors, but such memories may come later, after the recall of other sorts of experiences. Even recalled, pleasant childhood experiences tend to shift in later childhood or adolescence into more business-like encounters with an apparently serious reproductive, educational, or other agenda. Commonly, the initial memories of abduction experiences are of cold in different contacts in which the aliens, especially the gray reptilian or praying mantis-like beings, render the person altogether helpless and then proceed with their agendas without apparent regard for the feelings of the experiencer. But over time, the relationship seems to evolve into something quite different, especially if the experiencer can be helped to face and grow through the terror that so often accompanies these seemingly bizarre encounters. A deep familiarity and sense of meaningful connection develops between the experiencer and one or more of the beings which can reach heights of love so profound as to be felt to be incompatible with earthly love." Unquote. Now again, while it may be perplexing for Western ears to hear about abduction accounts and to try to make sense of them, even to get beyond the shock and the lack of human volition involved in the initial taking of people from their homes, to later evolve into something life-changing, transformational, and deeply relational, Mac reminds us that we have to take into account the larger context of other traditions outside of Western thinking. And again, this helps us not only to frame reality differently, but also to offer up some possibilities about how we may proactively engage with these beings in these different realms through various protocols. Again, something like CE5 or HICE, Human Initiated Contact Events or Experiences, is a common kind of contemporary protocol for those coming from a Western tradition. But other traditions have their own protocols, and we will pay attention to those in a moment. But first, let's again speak to the centrality of human experience and how this is honored more so in indigenous tradition than in modern Western tradition. Quoting again from the book, quote, Despite all of these difficulties, it has, I believe, been possible for me to learn a great deal from Native people, keeping in mind the uncertainties that derive from these problems. Most helpful in distinguishing actual personal experience from tribal belief and legend has been my ability to recognize elements that are identical or similar in the reports of travel people to those of Americans and other Westerners. In addition, there seems to be a language of words and bodily expressions of intense feeling that is similar and relatively unmistakable across cultures. As Whitehead has written, the basis of experience is emotional. Intense personal fear, excitement, anger, and grief have a universal language that points to actual events in someone's life, thus suggesting, in Whitehead's term, that there has been a provoker. The interpretation by the experiencer of what has happened will vary greatly from culture to culture. Unquote. So again, what's key there is that by studying different cultures and different ways that these encounters were interpreted, we have a better way of understanding the larger context and perhaps expanding the frame altogether. Now, again, as I mentioned earlier, there are different protocols that different traditions use to reach out to these beings. It is not just a one-way enterprise. We can, in fact, proactively engage with these others, take the front foot, as it were, although how we do that is important. We have to do it 
with energetic awareness and spiritual hygiene in mind. Again, matters that we discuss in the Expanding Awareness course. But I want to quote again from the book discussing this here. Quote, Astrophysicist Rudolf Shield has said that he has no problem with the idea of parallel universes per se, but that he is rather at a loss to know what a physicist who relies on telescopes and mathematics is supposed to do with the idea. But for theologian Smith, it is precisely the messy, meditational, mediational, and other consciousness-expanding and spiritual exercises known to indigenous cultures and to all the wisdom traditions, and, I would add, more recently developed forms of non-ordinary consciousness, such as hypnosis-related exercises, holotropic breathwork, remote viewing, and focused out-of-body techniques that may at least allow us to initiate access to these hidden realms. In the case of the abduction phenomenon, which appears to be a bridge that is to exist in both the visible and the invisible domains, the methods of traditional science, psychology, and the spiritual traditions may all apply to one or another of its aspects, unquote. Now, a moment ago, I discussed how different cultures may frame these encounters differently, and we can learn truths that are more overarching by comparing and contrasting these different traditions that have each had these different kinds of encounters. So you've got cultural differences in terms of how this will be framed, these encounters will be framed, even the reality that describes these encounters will be framed. But we also have another aspect, which again is controversial, but seems undoubtedly to be part and parcel with the enterprise. And that is the way that the individual having the experience also tends to frame the experience, even in terms of populating the dynamics of the experience. Again, this is something we talk about in the Expanding Awareness course, how we need to be very aware of our own energy going into these encounters, whether voluntary or not. Obviously, we have more control when we are voluntarily going in. But even before that, we want to cultivate kinds of lives where we are aware of our energy and what we're emitting and what we may be even attracting to us. Again, I know these are controversial matters, but this seems to be central to the experience, that it's not just about these things happening objectively to people in ways that their own energy doesn't play a role. Again, that kind of notion of reality seems to be outdated at this point, that we even know that the waveform is collapsed by the observation of a kind of consciousness. That also speaks not just to different kinds of waveforms collapsing into one possibility rather than another, but also the fact that we ourselves are part and parcel of the energetic overlap that causes a certain reality structure to form, that indeed we are part and parcel with the authoring of reality itself. Again, I know this is going to be controversial to many people. It will be mind-bending to some people. Some people will not be able to wrap their heads around it. Again, quantum experiments seem to be pointing in this direction. Ancient spiritual traditions have spoken about this for eons, and we're also seeing this reflected in some of the experience and the awareness that is garnered by some of these experiencers. And Mac talks about this in discussing Greg's encounter and his later interpretation of his encounters. Quoting again from the book, quote, Greg was 49, a successful physician in a southern U.S. city, when he contacted me in November 1996 after reading Abduction. He was aware of lifelong encounters and wanted especially to explore with me some of his earliest experiences with alien beings. Greg came to Boston for four one-and-a-half to two-hour sessions in December 1996 and March 1997. 
In these meetings, he struggled in particular with fears of threatening reptilian beings that, though real to him, seemed at the time to represent the dark elements of his own nature. When we spoke in January 1999, Greg said that as a result of confronting the shadow side of his nature, the experiences had become richer and more varied and multidimensional. In his view, the nature of alien encounters is reflective of the consciousness of the individual. Whatever remains unintegrated in a person's nature, Greg suggested, may show up in the experiences, unquote. Now, again, this is going to be controversial. This is not to say that when people have negative experiences with different kinds of beings, that it's their fault, that they just need to raise their consciousness and those beings will disappear. Nevertheless, there does seem to be an interactive element to this. We can't get away from that. Even Carl Jung spoke about the parts of us that are in shadow that we don't integrate will end up manifesting in other kinds of neurotic patterns in our lives. Again, the difference between the unconscious patterning and archetypes and physical reality seems to be blurred by the information we're learning about this phenomenon. Again, different aspects of different kinds of data sets coming from different fields are pointing in the same direction, that we are co-authors of our own reality and that we also may, by our energetic configuration, attract some kinds of beings rather than others, even if they do have their own ontologically objective existence. So again, this just speaks to the importance, the significance, the centrality of being aware of our own energy moving forward, especially in a time when it seems as if perhaps the veil is thinning, so to speak. At the conclusion of this book, as Mac reflects on what he has learned about the nature of reality itself and the times we find ourselves in, infused with both daunting challenges and unique opportunities, he concludes thusly, quote, In the end, the abduction phenomenon seems to be a part of the shift in consciousness that is collapsing duality and enabling us to see that we are connected beyond the earth at a cosmic level. No common enemy will unite us, but the realization of a common source might. Our notions of the divine, like everything else, seem to grow along with the evolution of our consciousness. We no longer expect an Old Testament god slash bully that will part the seas and bring us where we need to go. Nor is it likely that a messiah slash savior will lead us into the divine light. For that light, we are learning from phenomena like the one in this book and from near-death and other out-of-body experiences is an eternal part of ourselves and the essence of all creation. The creative principle is within us, not without. Thus, it cannot befall us. As Bernardo Piexoto discovered in a shattering realization, it is nowhere and everywhere. Unquote. And on that poignant note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian, or by subscribing on Spotify. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian, signing out.